Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm really excited to welcome today Joe Hernandez, who's the CEO and founder of Blue Water Acquisition Corp. Joe, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. We're we're excited to speak with you guys. So, you know, uh, maybe before we get into the heart of Blue Water and what's going on in the world, we'd love it if you could just give us a quick background on yourself and how you got to where you are today. Well, so I am, by training as a scientist, I started my career in the lab. I have an undergraduate in neuroscience, graduate degree in molecular genetics, and also a degree in uh, finance. But I really started as a bench scientist. You know, I was doing work as an undergraduate in uh, nerve regeneration. And then in graduate school, did a lot of work with gene therapy, specifically the adeno-associated virus. And then from there, I really transitioned into the pharmaceutical world after graduate school and was part of the commercial team at Merck, uh, the pharmaceutical giant that was involved with the launch of Vioxx, the infamous non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, and then also with Singular, which is a leukotriene inhibitor for asthma. And also with a, another drug called Fosamax, which is a, a drug for osteoporosis. So really got my lessons in what a big product launch is and what it looks like in a pharmaceutical company like Merck. Really one of the best cultures I've worked in. I really enjoyed my experience there and met some great people along the way. But I was always a startup uh, person. I, you know, I wanted some additional sort of excitement. So I ended up going to Silicon Valley with a company called Affymetrics, which at that time was in the early stages of developing a technology called the microarray. Uh, the microarray, uh, as you may know, was really a way to interrogate a whole genomes. And so it really revolutionized the way drug discovery was done in the pharmaceutical world. And there I uh, was part of the team that launched uh, and led the team that launched 12 products for that company and was really an an ultimate success in the uh, genomic space. After that, I came back East and took a a job with a company called Digene. Digene equally a revolutionary company in the sense that they changed the paradigm of how cervical cancer originates and were bold enough to suggest that cervical cancer was caused by a virus and developed a test for that and really changed the way we address cervical cancer. So today, most women that go to the gynecologist get a test that we developed you know, back in the early 2000s. So we were excited about that contribution and the efforts we did there. I took the earnings from those two experiences, both intellectually and financially, and then launched my own startup, which was a MIT spin-out, focused on rapid diagnostics for infectious disease, and also had a biodefense application. And you know, we raised $30 million for our, my first startup. I was a young CEO, which was really astonishing that somebody <laughs> trusted me with so much capital. But you know, we built a, a great company with that technology. And then I've, I've done that a, n- a number of different times, so about eight different times. Our most recent endeavor was a vaccine company that we spun out of Oxford University for the universal influenza vaccine. And that happened about two years ago. And then about a year ago, uh, we launched another company focused on the COVID challenge. So we were developing a COVID vaccine company called Righteous Terra that we sold after six months of its development. And we sold it to a company called Orogenics for the equivalent of about $20 million or so. And then more recently, uh, because the world has slowed down a little bit, I guess, uh, we launched a SPAC and we're successful in raising about $59.5 million in a SPAC vehicle in December. And that company is in the process of now looking for targets to acquire. Wonderful. It sounds like a quite storied background and a wide variety of experiences. You know, before we get into some of the meat of the discussion, given the variety of companies you've worked with, 
large pharma, startup biotechs, SPACs, diagnostics companies. What's your favorite? Oh, I got to tell you, I, I love the the grind of a startup. I mean, the sort of the early stages, the genesis of a company when you have a small team and you know you're all sort of putting your heart and soul into that company and defining its culture, defining you know how you want to change the world and the nuances of putting you know early stage presentations together and so forth is really an exciting process. Cool. I'd say as a fellow entrepreneur myself, uh, I could certainly empathize with the love hate duality that is a startup. Definitely a lot of potential, but also uh, to your point, the grind. Nothing like it. You know. You know. With that, obviously, we're in living in somewhat unprecedented times with COVID, and have been seeing, at least in the broader market, how you know the world of infectious diseases has obviously come back to the forefront, and a tremendous amount of investment now has sort of resurfaced across all different facets of the life cycle. Curious to just hear from your perspective how vaccines and infectious diseases are changing the types of companies we start, the types of activities, the types of research that we do, the investments we're made, et cetera. Well, I think I think COVID has had a, a number of different impacts in not only in biotech, but also in the, in the way we finance biotech companies. One is that it has, in fact, brought infectious disease to the forefront. So historically speaking, the pharmaceutical industry has been less apt to invest in things like antibiotics and antivirals because they're short-lived. They're very short therapy regimens. So the investment that's required to bring those drugs to market is the same as a chronic use drug. So therefore, they, it makes more economic sense to invest in chronic diseases versus you know short-term lived diseases uh, like infectious diseases. So that's been historically a challenge. You have, the other area that's been a challenge has been vaccine development, primarily for two reasons. One is there's a lot of exposure from a liability perspective when you roll out vaccines, because they usually are designed for vast numbers of people, and, and also a very long-term development cycle. So unlike a typical drug, the vaccine actually has a, a, even a, a longer uh, life cycle of development. So those two things have really uh, historically had made vaccine development and infectious diseases in general a challenge from an investment perspective. So that trickles down all the way from, you know, obviously pharmaceutical companies all the way down to venture capital investment. So it, it was before COVID really a, a challenge to raise money for infectious disease and for vaccine development. Got it. Yeah, obviously, it definitely seems like the, the business model and the, the timelines are slightly different than conventional medicines. But, you know, as we look into the future beyond COVID, curious what other areas of infectious disease you think the world should be paying attention to and what you think might have pandemic-like sort of potential. Well, I, I think if you look at the history of humanity, I think that it highly suggests that we should pay attention to infectious diseases because the reason we live so long today is is for really two reasons. One is vaccine and the other one is antibiotics. And I think uh, losing our sights on the importance of those two therapeutic approaches is, is really, I think, short-sighted. That being said, when you look at things like corona and specifically COVID-19, we have known a lot about corona. You know, MERS, which is a Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, is a very similar COVID-like virus that we knew about. And of course, we experienced during the wars in the Middle East. But subsequently, there's been uh, new propping up of variants and several different types of viruses, specifically around the influenza, that are, that are really worrisome. And one is, is, is called the G4H1N1, which is a pandemic influenza, which, which has a very high mortality rate, higher than covid and it's trying to basically jump its life cycle from pigs to humans and then ultimately from humans to humans. So that's one that, uh, you know, we, we like to keep an eye on. And, you know, we have development program looking at a vaccine for that specific one. And there's certainly other ones that are, uh, have pandemic abilities. Uh, I think the world should pay attention to those. 
you know, if memory serves, uh, you sort of spent a little bit of time identifying some potential therapies, right, to treat said diseases. You know, one of the interesting ones I know we spoke about before is thinking about this concept of a, a universal flu. I'm curious if you could share some insight on that. I am myself a big believer that we should have a vaccine that we can roll out to the world where you would get universal coverage on this disease this infectious agent that causes, you know, almost half a million deaths a year. So it's a very significant killer of people around the world, not only in in developed countries, but also in developing countries. I have been following the literature associated with uh, the flu in general, and and certainly the universal flu. And there was a a, a paper that was published back in 07 by a researcher at Oxford University by the name of Sunatra Gupta, and her work was really a mathematical model, which, which I thought was quite interesting. It was a, w- a new way to look at infectivity and how the evolution of these viruses occur, and then really making hypotheses as to how the virus and bacteria, in this case a virus, how it's able to sort of evade the immune system and, and, and basically continue this battle against humans that has been going on since, since we've been on the planet. And so her paper was really interesting because it basically was a mathematical model saying effectively, you know, if influenza is so diverse, like we think it is, right? Why is it that every year we only have one variant of the virus? Why, why don't we have a thousand? Why don't we have 10,000? Why aren't we like some of these highly diverse viruses where you see 100,000 different variants? And in fact, when you look at the history of the virus, you really have a dominant strain every year. But even that dominant strain has been around from a genetic perspective before. So, so it's not, it's being reincarnated to use a lack of a better term. And so, so that paper was really a mathematical model suggesting that. And then it wasn't really until about 2018 where a researcher at Oxford actually did the wet chemistry work to confirm and validate that, in fact, there were regions of uh, the influenza virus that were highly conserved and immunogenic. And in fact, if we made a mosaic of those conserved regions, we can, in fact, cover all the variants of influenza. And that's really the thesis of our universal flu vaccine that we're currently working on at Blue Water Vaccines. Well, you know, it brings up an interesting topic that obviously the industry has spoken a lot about, which is computationally derived medicines. Curious if you have any insights, especially given the complexity of viruses and other biomacromolecules, what role does computation play in terms of their design or selection, et cetera? Well, computational analysis, and I would say any quantitative analysis in general, plays a significant role and will continue to play a more important role as we move forward. Uh, you know, a lot of these analyses are being done in silico. So when you do, you know, genome alignments and genome predictions, in, in our case, we do a lot of, you know, genome alignment work, and, and that's all in silico. I mean, that's all computational based. We can even define and create in silico viruses to be able to figure out, you know, which are uh, the better designs of the ultimate vaccine. So the computational piece is, is, is a key. It has been a key and it has been an important role since, since genomic really popped its head back in 2000 when we sequenced the human genome. And I think we'll continue to be here and stay here. Uh, we're even using artificial intelligence to design molecules and, and really look at the, its three-dimensional functions and how they basically bind ligands and receptors. And so, so the computational elements of how we design drugs and ultimately how we roll out these drugs and these vaccines would continue to be a, a very important piece of it all. And I think we'll, we'll grow in, in terms of its importance. Mm, interesting. You know, maybe certainly off tangent, given your experience at Affymetrix, curious if you see computational methods and AI as an example, potentially in the diagnostic space, and maybe it's application there. Well, it's certainly, certainly in sequencing. 
sequencing, you know, is, is a platform that when I first started in the business was, you know, cost $100,000 to sequence a human genome, which by the way, was a bargain price compared to the billions that we spent on the first human genome sequence. But that being said, it, it, it was not a scalable thing to be able to sequence every human genome, even at a $100,000 price point. Today, we can sequence a human genome, you know, at close to $1,000, which is unbelievable. And, and that technology, as it advances, will become cheaper and highly quantitative because, you know, you have so many base pairs in your human genome. And understanding not only the genes that we know about is important from a diagnostics perspective, but also looking at regions of the genome that don't, uh, what we call the microRNA environment, the areas where uh, we used to call it junk DNA, but in reality, <laughs> was not junk, was a very functional element of our genome. So that will continue to, be, to play an important role. I think mRNA diagnostics, which is an area that I spent some time on, is really also a, a new area, which we'll see a lot more development in. Certainly mRNA therapeutics and vaccines, as we see with the, the two forefronts in the COVID vaccines, those are mRNA vaccines. I, I think that when you look at the quantitative in silico work that was done early on to develop those vaccines, I think one would argue that these technologies are here to stay and will definitely play a, a bigger role as we move forward. Uh, you know, that's, I think, a, a really interesting sort of thing to look at when you start saying, you know, as a diagnostics company, yes, you can leverage AI in terms of the interpretation of a given measurement, but I think it provides some really interesting opportunities when you start looking at it at a population level, right? Imagine the type of data sets that someone like an exact sciences, for example, or a Quanteric sits on, right? quite exciting to see what happens with uh, and even and even companies that are you know more in the genealogy work like you know 23 mm-hmm. me i mean that data set is is important from a therapeutic development perspective and so you know we become more quantitative and certainly those these data sets will not only help us understand ourselves a little bit better but also help us understand disease and how we interact with disease and ultimately how you develop therapies to um, circumvent that yeah you know it's interesting you know your comment there on 23 me and ancestry.com make me think like the one thing that those two companies have in common is that they're consumer focused, right? right? And the data just happens to be, I don't want to call it a byproduct because it means it's unintentional, but it is not the public presence of those companies. Curious what that means for like the business models of the next generation of drug discovery entities. Are they actually going to be consumer grade businesses that just happen to do drug discovery as a side project? Curious if you have a thought on that. I think what we've learned in drug development in the last, call it, 100 years that we've been developing pharmaceuticals and really deploying pharmaceuticals to treat disease, what we learned is we don't all respond the same to the same drug. We're biologically very different. Our mechanisms of degrading drugs and ultimately using drugs uh, and how we, you know, how we fight disease from a biological perspective is very unique. We're all very different from that perspective. So one shoe does not fit all. And I, and I think what we have seen is that using genomics as a, as a tool to gauge what therapies work best for certain people is a paradigm that has really shifted the way pharmaceutical drug development has occurred. And I think that'll, that will continue to be the case moving forward. And, and it certainly highlights the fact that these genomic data sets are going to be really important, not only for drug development, but also for defining who uh, are the best patients for these therapies. Makes a lot of sense. So, you know, maybe switching gears here a little bit, you know, we talked about business models for some of these companies. You know, obviously for biotech, there's a myriad of different ways in which one can build their organization and finance the development, right, of their of their drugs, whether it be, you know, VC, angel money, development money, grants, SPACs, et cetera. Curious if you could just give us maybe some insight into 
some of the different modes you've seen of financing and capitalizing a life sciences company, as well as uh, maybe some of the pros and cons and maybe your preference amongst them? I have raised a lot of venture money in my career because we've, we've been involved in so many early stage companies. So the, the historical model for financing companies has been you use your own capital, you raise you know, friends and family and fools is what we call it, the first sort of early rounds. And then you turn to venture capital, which is more sophisticated capital. These are usually area specialists that really know these therapeutic areas. They fund your company. You ultimately get a drug developed or you move it along the development path line. And then you have two options. We either sell it to big pharma or you bring it public. And that's kind of been the historical model for how one monetizes these investments. A model that's really popped up recently, although it's not really a recent model or a recent uh, approach, has been the SPAC role and, and SPACs in general. And, and SPACs are effectively, they're called blank check companies. So these are companies that raise money in the public world to effectively go and acquire a private entity. And so we, we actually were involved and I was involved and was the founder and, and main sponsor of a SPAC called Blue Water Acquisition Corp, which is focused in, in the healthcare biotech sector. We raised about $59.5 million to go buy a company in the space. That's a, an area that we've spent the last couple of months putting together, and we're effectively now in what we call the company search process. And in that context, you know, it reminds me of a, a model you see a lot of, out of a lot of business schools, which is sort of the search fund, right? Which obviously isn't publicly traded per se. Any insight into sort of the delta between those two or the, the pros and cons? Obviously, there seems like there's probably more scrutiny on the SPAC than otherwise. Well, SPACs are effectively a public company. So you're raising the public, you're using the public vehicles to raise public money. And so there, there's a, a lot of checks and balances as, as one would expect. And, you know, from a SPAC perspective, there's a lot of protections to investors, which are important because, you know, when you raise a SPAC, while you are in fact a blank check company, the money that you raise, including your own sponsored capital, in our case, we, you know, we put up about, or I put up about three and a half million dollars of capital to get the SPAC initiated. And so that capital sits in escrow. It doesn't get touched until we present the investors with a deal. They vote on that deal and then the capital is released and, and ultimately the public company then goes about its business of developing or commercializing a drug. Yeah, got it. And if you were in the shoes of a biotech company looking to merge with a SPAC, what advice would you give founders, CEOs of such private biotechs as they think about this vehicle as a way to go public? Well, I'm obviously very biased towards SPACs for, for a number of different reasons. One is, you know, having been involved in public offerings, so, you know, we've, we've done IPOs before, the IPO process is a very long process. It takes, you know, in our case, it took us two years, even though we were moving at warp speed. So you work for two years, you get the company ready for public offering, you do all the nuances that is required to be a publicly traded company, and then you go price the deal. And you don't really know what the price of the deal is until you actually price it on that day. So you could, you could have worked for two years and really have a pricing valuation on your company that may not be agreeable to you and your investors. And, and there's many times where people pull back from an IPO because of that. A SPAC allows you the opportunity to basically negotiate the value of the transaction beforehand. So you're, you're really focusing on the other elements of the business and not the valuation. That's one thing. The other thing is it's a faster mechanism, in my opinion. And certainly what it allows you to do is to get to the markets more quickly and ultimately raise the capital that you need to grow, whether it be to develop the drug further or ultimately commercialize it. And I think those things make a, a SPAC vehicle incredibly attractive for companies that are sort of at that stage where they're either thinking about going public or thinking about raising their larger round. 
and have the elements that it takes to be a publicly traded company. And the speed is definitely one that I've certainly heard bandied about as, a, as definitely a, an advantage. I think the other is you know companies that might not necessarily be in vogue perhaps or have as easy a time to raise capital through the traditional IPO process could also potentially benefit. Curious if you'd agree with that assessment. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the the public markets are very efficient. So, you know, if you don't belong in the public markets, the markets are going to tell you that. And if you have a technology or an approach that doesn't have real market merit, the markets are a great equalizer. In my opinion, you still have to be a viable company. You still have to have a story that resonates. You still have to create value to the investors from an investment perspective. And I, I think you, you, those things are, are are still the case. Where I think there's added value is, again, you know, it allows you to get to the market quickly from a financing perspective. And it certainly allows you to tap into experience management and board members. So this back usually one of the value this back has is usually they have very seasoned board members. And those board members oftentimes are integrated into the new publicly traded company. There's a lot of value add from that perspective as well beyond the capital that's available from a SPAC perspective. You know, it's certainly great advice and I think great insight, uh, especially for those companies that are examining the two different, the different set of options, whether it be again, you know, IPO or SPAC or otherwise. Um, you know, Joe, we'd love to thank you for uh, being on the podcast today and sharing a little bit about both your background, which is obviously quite impressive, as well as your view sort of on the, the public markets here on out. And I certainly wish you a tremendous amount of success and love to have you back on the show uh, when you've uh, acquired a company and love to hear maybe the inside story uh, on that. Wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity and, and certainly enjoy speaking with you on, on the topics and look forward to staying in touch and, and hopefully we'll, we'll have a good positive story at the back end of this. Absolutely. Great. Thanks much. Thank you. Best of luck to you guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by Malok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.